According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me one more time in Proverbs 19. This will be our final class in chapter 19, and we'll move on to chapter 20 next week, Lord willing and rapture pending. We actually uh, covered the bulk of this already last week as we were running out of time. We got to the final couple of verses here, and we'll run through those again. But there's some psalms I want to touch on, and I mentioned some messianic psalms and things that I wanted to take at least one class to uh, to go through with you together to talk about some things. Uh, not only is it a useful study in connection to Proverbs, but also uh, will be a benefit for us moving forward in some things we're doing in, uh, for example, Genesis as it's coming up, and uh, some other studies there too. So Anyway, I'm excited about it. I think uh, we're going to also see some psalms in, uh, in Colossians before uh, much longer. Colossians chapter 2 is going to address some things. And so uh, this will be kind of a, a, a neat blessing for us to, to kind of dovetail some of these studies together that might not otherwise come together quite that way. All right. Well, when we talk about uh, evil and the visitation of evil and... Uh, the problems that we deal with here. The, uh, the promise is in the fear of the Lord, verse 23, the, the fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil, unvisited by evil. And uh, that's uh, the description of that here and elsewhere in Scripture is not a good thing. And we don't want to be visited, a visitation, whether it's the Lord visiting or evil visiting or something else, a visitation is, is an involved process. And uh, uh, there's a lot of teaching that goes into the concept of visitation. And so really the rest of the chapter, chapter 19, verses 24 down through 29, is addressing this visitation of evil and uh, some of the consequences here in these characters like the sluggard and the scoffer and the, and the, uh, the, the one who assaults father and mother. I gave names to all these characters. Uh, but each character in all these verses through the end of the chapter is just a terrible character. And we start to think of it in terms of being visited by evil. And we see that the damage that that does in, in someone's life is just, uh, is just horrendous. So, all right, well, let's uh, open with a word of prayer and uh, pick up our study where we left it and uh, thank our Father for this time together this morning. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness, Father, once again, that we have the opportunity to study to show ourselves approved. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you for uh, these brothers and sisters that are here uh, in person, in the building together, worshiping once again. And also, Father, for those that are with us electronically, they are with us in spirit, if not in body, and we thank you for that as well. So, Father, this day is yours. Use it to glorify your Son. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, and so um, picking up our slideshow where we were dealing with it, we had, uh, let's see, it was point 16 in the outline. The fear of the Lord is the prime ingredient for the faith rest life. And uh, we discussed some of the issues connected to this. This is the 12th time that Proverbs has featured fear of the Lord. We reviewed those uh, there are two yet to come that will be coming up in chapter 22 and in chapter 23. 
Beyond Proverbs, the expression is only used seven times in the whole Old Testament, and that surprised me actually. I expected more. And the reason why I expected more is because there actually is much more, but rather than the fear of Yahweh, uh, the more common expression is the fear of Elohim. And the fear of Elohim is throughout the Old Testament in a variety of places. We looked at a sampling of them together as we were going through these issues. Now the consequence for not having the fear of the Lord is the visitation by evil. And we see this again, it's it's the B portion of, of 1923. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied unvisited. It's not just untouched, but unvisited by evil. And really the six closing verses of this chapter illustrate a variety of such visitations. And I think with each of the characters that we look at here, it's pretty easy to see that, uh, that these character traits, like being a sluggard, for example, we've seen the sluggard before, but this is extreme. This is off the charts. And, uh, and so what, what, what causes a sluggard to become a, a champion sluggard? You know, you would think a sluggard would be too lazy to become a champion sluggard. But in, in a sense, and I know it's twisted and, and ironic, uh, but the supreme sluggard uh, you can easily see that this is, this is the consequences of being visited by evil. This is the consequences of God giving somebody over. And uh, what Romans 1 would talk about three different times in being given over and, uh, and applications there. So in verse 24 we looked at the supreme sluggard so lazy that he gets his hand in the dish and it's like it's buried there. He can't even lift it to his mouth to eat his next bite of food. The stricken scoffer is the character from verse 25, and he actually comes back in verse 29, uh, the stricken scoffer receiving blows on the back. Verse 25 says, strike a scoffer and the naive may become shrewd. And uh, verse 29, judgments are prepared for scoffers. This is where he makes his encore performance. And blows for the back of fools. Blows for the back of fools. And it's, uh, it is curious to me uh, the the fact that the Bible does describe corporal punishment even for adult offenders. That uh, something that was common through much of world history, much of even American history in colonial times and, and even thereafter up to the Civil War and beyond, we still would have corporal discipline, lashings uh, if you will, and other public administrations of justice. Uh, these days, I don't know that it occurs anywhere outside of the Muslim world or outside of uh, certain places. We talk about Singapore that has caning still. Uh, for different uh, offenses. The third character is the shameful son who is violent and abusive. He is plundering instead of inheriting and uh, he's in a hurry to receive his inheritance so much so that if it brings harm to his father and mother, oh well, he doesn't care because uh, it's time for them to depart. He, uh, he wants to obtain everything that he feels is rightfully his and uh, and they are in the way. And so what we see introduced here in Proverbs 19.26, we're going to come back to it again a couple of times in Proverbs 20.21 20, and again in Proverbs 28.24. Uh, now this is where we're going to depart slightly because uh, it's, it's the expression that's found here in verse 26 where we have the tandem of shame and disgrace. Uh, it says, he who assaults his father and drives his mother away is a shameful and disgraceful son. And that's a tandem of two Hebrew expresses, uh, expressions there. And that tandem, shame and disgrace, uh, comes together very frequently. And, and what I observed in, in looking at 
the places where they were found and especially where they were found together, I noticed that it was frequent, it was an, uh, an often um, uh, situation as presented in Messianic Psalms, and so particularly Davidic Psalms, although uh, Psalm 83 is not Davidic, but the Davidic Psalms as we're looking at them, uh, I think we're going to see this tandem of shame and disgrace in a variety of different ways. So uh, that's what I'm going to kind of center on today, and we'll see, we get through it by the top of the hour, I hope, uh, quite clearly. Beyond that then, uh, we'll be able to uh, finish uh, these other characters with uh, points D and E, uh, because we have the unlistening unfollower, the unlistening unfollower in verse 27, where it says, cease listening, my son. And that's an order, actually. It may not be viewed as an order, but that's an order. Cease listening, my son, to discipline, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Why would God command a believer to stop listening? And we'll talk about that, and we'll see um, a parallel in Revelation, and, and really the, the application of being given over as, uh, as these things are. So before we leave today, hopefully when we finish the look at the Psalms, we will um, deal with this unlistening unfollower, and then we will also listen, uh, deal with the worthless wit- witness and his mocking mouth. The Belial, the worthless witness and his mocking mouth in verse 28. Uh, as if we don't have enough of them already, we <laughs> uh, the world is full of them, and uh, depending on, on your circumstance, maybe you have more than your fair share in your periphery, uh, maybe in your neighborhood or in your workplace or in your circle of associates. Um, the New American Standard, I'm not really fond of rascally, uh, I guess, the rascally witness, um, but the term for Belial does speak of something that's worthless, and uh, that's what we have here, and yet trying to offer a testimony when you've got nothing to say. And uh, when everything you are, everything you do, everything you say is worthless, why are we even listening? And yet it seems that they, uh, they seem to have a pretty decent audience anyway. So uh, the rascally witness makes a mockery of justice, and the mouth of the wicked spreads iniquity. And uh, we'll discuss the Hebrew on that. More than spreading, I think, with swallowing is, is the is uh, really the image that we have there. So swallowing sin. The worthless witness and his mocking mouth swallowing sin. So we will handle those two before we reach the end of our time today. I do want to uh, spend uh, some time with you this morning looking at these psalms. So let's begin with Psalm 40 and I'll bring the Bible up on the screen here. And this is one that I have not yet repositioned. Okay. I had redone most of my slides so that we could keep the words up there. Psalm 40 in verse 14. We're looking at the tandem of shame and disgrace and uh, the places where it's found. And we're going to be keying in mainly on Psalm 40, Psalm 70, Psalm 71. Uh, those are all Davidic, and then Psalm 83, uh, which is not, but it's, it's, uh, we'll, we'll show you why the, uh, the connection is there. Let me, uh, we're still experimenting, <laughs> and uh, especially the way the camera picks up on these things. I think I can do that without ruining too much. Because there's so much in Psalm 40... 
one of my favorite psalms and uh, for the different applications found therein. We've hit it in a variety of studies from Hebrews to life of Christ to different things. All right. I waited patiently for the Lord and He inclined to me and heard my cry. What a gracious Father. What a faithful provision. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. And we can appreciate the value of this. We can appreciate the example that David established. And of course, he's a type of Christ. Much of this not only looks at the historical David, but also looks at Christ and, uh, and the affliction that he went through. Of course, the cross is the biggest of all. And when he cries out in prayer and the Father hears and when the rescue comes, there is praise to be offered. And even while we're waiting, even when the answer hasn't come yet, we're still with thanksgiving making our request known because we know that the answer will come. It's just we're, we're finite creatures of time waiting for, the, waiting for the realization of our Father's faithfulness to be made known. And so we, are, uh, we have the, the blessing to, to grow through such occasions, the blessing to learn uh, uh, greater uh, degrees to our faith through such testings. And then when they're complete, we get to write a new song. We get to compose something new. And uh, every testimony of God's faithfulness is new every time we realize it. And we have the blessings to be able to testify in that regard. And so um, is that, could that be a reason why we want to count it all joy when we encounter various trials? Well, sure. Because the variety of trials we go through become the variety of praise applications once we, we reach the victory on the other side of the trial. All right. And uh, we get to celebrate with others and they can join and they can uh, share in our faith. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Remember there's an adversary and he is the king of pride and he is the, the liar and the father of lies. And so the, the Christian walk really comes down to are we trusting in our, our God and Father who loves us and the, the son that he gave to, to purchase our redemption? Or are we following after the path of the adversary? that tremendous liar who said he would be like the Most High God. So we don't want to turn to the proud or to the falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. You know, like so many of our songs talk about, count your many blessings, name them one by one. We can't name them all. The half has never been told and some of these other expressions that we have related to how infinite is our God and, and the things that He has done. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired, my ears you have opened. When this gets quoted in Hebrews, it's rewritten as uh, a body thou hast prepared for me, which is another understanding that's acceptable from the Hebrew, and it's curious how um, and the same Holy Spirit who wrote Psalm 40 also wrote Hebrews, so we're not really bothered by the reason why it's my ears you have opened in, uh, in the Old Testament and a body you have prepared for me in the book of Hebrews. But we understand this is a tremendous messianic psalm that's pointing exactly to the person of Jesus Christ. And I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. 
I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. And so this is the, the faithfulness of Jesus coming to do the will of the Father, unlike Satan who rebelled and did his own thing, and unlike Adam who rebelled to follow uh, after what Satan would have for him and his wife to do. Jesus is faithful. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. That was another tandem we looked at a few weeks ago. That tandem of grace and truth, loving kindness and truth. In the Hebrew it's the chesed and the yemeth. And uh, what we see in the Gospels is grace and truth. Whereas Moses brought the law, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth are revealed in Jesus Christ. So we can appreciate these, uh, these here as well. Verse 11. I want to make sure I don't miss over the verse. <laughs> Sometimes I get so sidetracked by the larger context I fail to remember that the verse I'm headed for is actually verse 14. <laughs> All right. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. Remember, as you receive Christ Jesus our Lord, so walk in Him. Uh, we're saved by grace through faith. We're going to continue to walk by grace through faith. And it's God's loving kindness and truth that sustains us in our Christian walk. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head and my heart has failed me. Clearly this is an element that only applies to David. It doesn't apply to Jesus as well. There's no dual fulfillment here because when you're talking about sin, uh, Jesus had no sin. So this is a verse that's explicitly, exclusively Davidic with respect to that. And that's interesting. The man after God's own heart is uh, the, the chief of all sinners, at least until Paul comes along in the New Testament to, uh, to outdo David. And the uh, chief of all sinners title gets passed on. Alright, now verses 13 and 14. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let's understand that our deliverance, our salvation is a matter of God's good pleasure. Be pleased, O Lord. Everything God does is that which pleases Him. It pleases Him to, to glorify His Son. It pleases Him to provide redemption by grace through faith. It pleases Him. He's, he's saving us for His sake, not ours. Though we benefit, it's His good pleasure that accomplishes our salvation. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together. Now we get to this tandem I'm talking about of shame and disgrace. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life or my soul to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. And so this shame and disgrace, this tandem that we spotlighted there in Proverbs 19, it gets used in uh, in a lot of senses and, and pretty commonly connected to messianic psalms in anticipation of hostility against the Christ. So let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. And so it really does. It comes down to us versus them. It comes down to one community, 
the community of faith that's, that's in fellowship with God, and then the other community that's very hostile, that's following after the liar, that's following after the, uh, the deceit there of, of Satan and his world system. Alright, so this gets to the end of the psalm. The Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. And that's, uh, what a nice way to end a psalm, you know, because we finish our prayer, we say amen, and then what do we got to do? We got to (laughs) wait. That's right. We're creatures of time, bound by time. We're proceeding through the time stream, you know, that linear forward motion. It never stops, it never turns back. And we wait, and we wait, and God is faithful. He's going to answer not too soon, not too late, at just the right moment, in, uh, in just the right way. And uh, we can be thankful for that. All right, we have, uh, so that's Psalm 40. We also have it in Psalm 70. Psalm 70. Another Davidic psalm. O God, hasten to deliver me. O Lord, hasten to my help. And now the tandem of shame and disgrace. Let those be ashamed and humiliated, that's the tandem, who seek my life or my soul. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. All right, so very similar to what we just read there in Psalm 40. And we realize that when we stay faithful to the Lord, we name the name of Christ, we're walking with our integrity, that uh, that we're objects of attack, that even... uh, even our soul, isn't this interesting how even uh, the hunters of souls get active in, uh, in this angelic conflict? Who delight in my hurt. Let those be turned back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. <laughs> you know, I think David, it's probably pretty common for all songwriters, I've got to ask Doug this, um, you know, that do you, do you reuse certain lyrics? Do you have certain uh, habits you fall into? Are you fond of certain expressions? So you, you include them in a variety of different tunes, a variety of different songs that you write. I think David en- encompassed some, some uh, phraseology in a, a variety of different psalms. Let, verse 4 goes on to say, Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. So we've hit this a couple times. And the, the, the magnification... And this is a much better statement than why me, Lord? Okay, You're going through a test and you're being unfairly attacked and the common human temptation is to stop and say, why me? This shouldn't happen to me. And uh, it's not right and I don't like it. And make it stop. And all the other complaints that we have for the undeserved suffering that we go through, the much better reply, the biblical reply, reply featured in Psalm 40 and now in Psalm 70, is uh, let God be magnified. Okay? Like Jesus said, not my will but thine be done. Let God be magnified. If this is, if this is the test you've assigned, well then not only amen, so be it, but let God be magnified. Might this test magnify uh, our, the faithfulness of our God so that I can see it, my enemies can see it, my friends can see it. Let everybody testify that God is, uh, is great and greatly to be praised. But I am afflicted and needy Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. And so there it is. And I like it. I like the tandem there. I love the fact that um, 
those realities are, are not contradictory. So if I am afflicted and needy, that doesn't diminish God. It's not a problem for God. Let God be magnified. God is not diminished because I am afflicted and needy. No, let God be magnified. And uh, I don't know, to me, if, if, um, if there's a spirit at work in our age, if there's a, if there's a fundamental attitude that shapes the way we, we look at things, um, maybe it comes across in, in these ways that if, 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 if I'm having problems in life, if I'm suffering, if, uh, if I'm afflicted, well then something must be wrong. Something wrong with my faith or something wrong with, with God. He's clearly dropped the ball because he allowed this to happen. <laughs> no. Don't think of it like it's some strange thing. If, uh, if, 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 if you're afflicted in, by these, it's not strange. It's normal. And so we can, uh, we can put these verses up simultaneously looking at verse 4 and looking at verse 5 and say, let God be magnified. We still seek Him. What else are we going to do? What's the alternative to, to the fear of the Lord, the faith, rest, life? I mean, it's, uh, it's not a pretty picture. So we can be thankful related to that as well. And then finally, uh, nope, we've got Psalm 71 next and then Psalm 83. So Psalm 71, prayer of an old man for deliverance. Now this one does not list David in the prescript, but it follows Psalm 70, which is clearly Davidic, and it's, I think, by tradition this is understood to also be Davidic, Davidic in his old age. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge, let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness deliver me and rescue me, incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and the ruthless man. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from my youth. By you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. And this gets quoted, this gets referenced. This was typical of David's life. This was typical of our Savior. Uh, this is an expression very similar uh, to this in Psalm 22 that Jesus quotes while he's on the cross. That God is faithful and he's been trusting the Lord even while upon his mother's breast. I have become a marvel to many, for you are my strong refuge. <laughs> I think that helps. It helps us to endure certain tests when we realize, you know what, it's not all about me. I'm just, I'm just the visual aid. God's teaching lessons to other people. And so I need to endure what I'm enduring for, for that sake, among other reasons. But a marvel to many. Uh, verse 8, my mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all day long. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. See, God doesn't do that. From generation to generation, He is faithful. And from our youth to our old age and every day in between, it's the same God. We're going to see this in Hebrews coming up by you know, yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same. And, uh, and what a blessing. That's, uh, in fact, that's the follow-up to remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their, of their faith. So from generation to generation. And what a contrast 
this world will chew you up, spit you out when they've got no further use for you then it's goodbye. And, uh, and some of the, the attitude towards our elderly, some of the, the terrible treatment that, uh, that happens is, is shameful. And it's, it's shameful in a secular sense, just on a societal basis, but it's biblically shameful in the, uh, of course, in the will of God with the perspective of God and His faithfulness from, uh, uh, from birth to, to death and every day in between. So I love that. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. For my enemies have spoken against me and those who watch for my life have consulted together saying God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him for there is no one to deliver. What verse am I headed for on this one? I'm headed for ah, verse 24. Okay, A much longer psalm on this one. All right. So do not be far from me. Hasten to my help. Let those who are adversaries of my soul be ashamed and consumed. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek to injure me. But as for me, I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long. All day long. This is our blessing to testify. You know, if he had this flowery bed of ease, kind of a a complacent life with no conflict, no problems, if you were just kind of drifting along with them, then, then what kind of praise would you ever possibly offer? You can't offer the continual praise, the continual salvation without seeing the adversity and seeing God's faithfulness. So I will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long. I do not know the sum of them. And that's true. We're only aware of a portion of everything that God's doing. I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. You know, if you think about it, what a testimony. And uh, this is coming up in church history, by the way, that we're going to see the martyrdom of Polycarp, and we're going to see some other examples of believers that have testified that all these years God has been faithful. They would have taken, uh, taken Polycarp off of the, they burned him at the stake, but they would have taken him down and spared his life. All he had to do was recant, recant his faith, deny Christ. And, uh, and he has this marvelous testimony for 80 and 6 years I have, you know, my Lord has been faithful to me, shall I, shall I deny him now? And uh, I think that clearly it reflects the, the attitude that David is communicating here. For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens, you who have done great things. O God, who is like you? Notice that repeated again. We've seen that in Psalm 40, comes back in Psalm 70, here in Psalm 71. Who is like you? You know, that's, that's more than just a rhetorical question. I think it's a very pointed rebuke. For the liar who said, I will be like the Most High God. The who is like you. God himself uses it in Isaiah. He says, who will you compare to me? Who is like you? Nobody. You who have shown me many troubles and distresses will revive me again and will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. May you increase my greatness and turn to comfort me. I will also praise you with a harp, even your truth, O my God. To you I will sing praises with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you and my soul, which you have redeemed. 
My tongue also will utter your righteousness all day long, for they are ashamed, they are humiliated who seek my hurt. That's the conclusion to Psalm 71. That shame and disgrace tandem from Psalm from Proverbs 19:26 that we're looking at this morning. Ashamed and humiliated. That's the tandem. Finally then, now when we get to Psalm 83, this one is not Davidic. Psalm 83. A Psalm of Asaph. And this, <laughs> this is uh, another deep application. So much of the Psalms has all this deep doctrine, and yet we don't, I don't know, in, in categorical churches that, uh, that Psalms gets emphasized the way that it needs to. It's not a, not a Pauline epistle, and you don't treat it like, uh, like a New Testament text for the church, and yet the doctrine is, is so profound it spans any dispensation from Israel to the church to the millennium and, and, it, and, uh, and so forth. The practical doctrine of, of living the, the, uh, the holy life before God gets played out here. Alright, so in Psalm 83 I'm headed for verse 17. And uh, I guess I can read the whole thing again. I did with Psalm 71, didn't I? Psalm 83. <laughs> and so yeah, by the time you get to verse 17, you're almost to the end of the chapter. We've got uh, verse 18 is the last the last verse there. All right. O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And O God, do not be still. It might seem like it, particularly if we've been praying for some length of time, if we've been praying and and the answer doesn't come within a week or a month or a year or two years or how many years? You know, how long do you pray for certain issues before you just give up and say, well, I guess God's not going to answer this? Okay. Keep listening. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. And this is kind of neat. You know, in the Davidic approach, David would say, they're my enemies. They're against me. But Asaph is actually going to say, no, these are God's enemies. Your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have exalted themselves. And, uh, you know, not to bust on David or say that Asaph had a better perspective, because I think we can likely find Davidic equivalents to this, but still it's noteworthy as we've, uh, from the, the sampling that we've had here today, that, uh, that Asaph turns it to God's perspective. Those, your enemies, those who hate you. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. Aren't we his treasure? Are we precious in his sight? Do we have value? Yes. Of course we have value. Look at the price that he paid in order to redeem us. It's a price beyond anything else imaginable. So, uh, you know, the next pity party you show, you throw yourself with the boo-hoo, woe was me thing, just remember choice and precious in the sight of God. That uh, you have a passage such as this, your treasured ones. They have said, come, let us wipe them out as a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. How many times, you know, have people tried to exterminate the Jews? It's not going to happen. <laughs> They're going to keep trying though. That's Satan's best chance to prove God a liar because God made eternal promises to the Jewish people. 
And if there are no Jewish people, then Satan can say, aha, you're a liar. And uh, that's his best chance. That's why anti-Semitism is, is always going to be with us, uh, at least so far as Satan keeps trying to prove God a liar. All right. So they have conspired together with one mind against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the, and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria has joined with them. They have become a help to the children of Lot. Always curious to me whenever a, an international agency comes together and unites a bunch of separate people groups in some kind of cause, usually it's going to be anti-God, whatever that cause ends up being. Anti-Israel and anti-God. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin in the torrent of Kishon. This is why it's good to have a sense of history, a good to remember the faithfulness of God and what He's done in the past. For Israel, they could review Old Testament history and it was their nation's history. For us, you know, we review church history and we learn the things and we, we see how God was faithful in the time of the martyrs and the time of the Reformation and the time of different things. And uh, we can appreciate that and it can shape our prayer life. So Sisera and Jabin at the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Zabah and Zalmunna, who said... Let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. All of this hostility is against God and trying to lay claim. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. Pursue them with your tempest. Terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Isn't that interesting? You know, perhaps divine justice as it's being applied might spark some kind of repentance. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever. There's their tandem. Shamed, ashamed and dismayed forever. Let them be humiliated and perish. You know, of all these descriptions, and you wonder, uh, we know what the lake of fire is going to be like. We know what the lost estate for, for the unbeliever is, both in, in hell and in the lake of fire. We're told that it's a time of darkness. We're told it's a time of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and what kind of weeping is that? What kind of sorrow is that? What kind of guilt and regret is that that's being expressed? Well, I think this tandem of shame and disgrace, this um, to be ashamed and dismayed forever. And uh, the, the recognition, because every knee will bend, every tongue will confess that before they get cast in the lake of fire, they will stand before Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. And every soul that spends eternity in the lake of fire will know that it's the fairness of God, the absolute justice and integrity of God by which that they are suffering that eternal destiny when uh, it was not necessary. Provision was made to rescue them from that. And every soul will recognize that that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. And so for all eternity with Satan and his angels, it's called the fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels, for all eternity, Satan, every fallen angel, every demon, every unbelieving human, they're going to occupy this realization forever. That you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. All right, so there's Psalm 83. Curious, isn't it? All right, so this is the uh, the shameful son. Getting back now to Proverbs nineteen twenty six. 
shrink my Bible back down to where it belongs. All right. Let's wrap up the last of these then, Proverbs 19, 27. Here's an order. Cease listening, my son, to discipline, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Can you imagine being told, quit coming to Bible class. (laughs) Don't ever read your Bible ever again. And uh, we find a, uh, a giving over here. I call him the unlistening unfollower. Because you're not going to be following the words of knowledge. You're not going to be on the path of righteousness. You're going to be an unfollower because you're an unlistener. The unlistening unfollower. Maybe that's not the best in names, but I've been trying to be alliterative through all these. The supreme sluggard, the stricken scoffer, the shameful son, the unlistening unfollower. All right. Cease listening, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Now he's actually commanded, commanded to stop listening to the instructive discipline. Remember the Musar? Remember the Musar of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord? That's instructive discipline. It's brought into the New Testament as paideia. It's the the child training discipline. Bring up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. Or parents to train up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And we, we're supposed to listen to Musar. When God is disciplining us, listen. <laughs> learn what you need to learn so that the discipline can stop. The discipline is designed to be corrective. So humble yourself and listen and, uh, and walk the walk you're supposed to walk. That's what we're told. Until we get to this verse, when God just gives the, the person over and says, alright, I'm done. He says, stop listening. Stray from the path, and there you go. And so this, uh, this character is commanded to stop listening to instructive discipline and face the consequences. To me it's quite similar and striking to uh, a problematic verse in Revelation 22 that sparks a lot of discussion. Revelation 22.11 let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Now this, yeah, again, people are struck by this and it raises eyebrows, like why would God say such a thing? But see, understand what Revelation 22 is. When you're in 21 and 22, we're past the, the great white throne judgment. We're in the new heavens and on the new earth. We're in the, what I call, the, what I think the Bible describes as the dispensation of the fullness of times. The thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. And where are the unbelievers? They're all locked away in the lake of fire forever. And they are all still wrongdoers. They are all still filthy. And they will always be filthy. The lake of fire is not reform school, right? It's not purgatory. There's no, uh, you know, they can't uh, see the error of their ways and get out of it. In fact, it only reinforces their ways the longer they stay in. The filthiness gets filthier. The unrighteousness gets more unrighteous. And uh, this is, again, by God's imperative, by God's command. What a tragic giving over. This is like the ultimate eternal giving over. I mentioned Romans uh, 1 a little bit earlier. 
Three times in Romans 1, there is a giving over. And I tell you, every time I've had, uh, particularly in my teen years, uh, uh, prolonged carnality that God graciously got me through and let me live past it, (laughs) got me saved out of that and and, uh, repentant. But he didn't have to. He could have given me over. And I just thank God that he didn't. But three times, verse 24, verse 26, verse 28, there's a threefold giving over. And we see cycles in that. We see that at each stage, perhaps, at each stage there is, uh, uh, after the first giving over, maybe then can come a repentance. But then there's a second giving over. But even then, maybe there can still be a repentance. But then there's a third giving over. And you think, you know, how long-suffering is God? It's long-suffering. He's slow to anger, not never to anger. He's, uh, there, there does come the, the, the final uh, sin and a death where there is no repentance, there is no return from it. And so we see it described here, even earlier than verse 24, Romans chapter 1. And uh, I think the main issue here as far as displaying the righteousness of God is concerned. That uh, righteousness is on display and wrath is on display. And if you're with us in the Roman series, you might recall that this is how we taught it. Verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed, presently, now, revealed. And every time the gospel is proclaimed, God's righteousness is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And so this is from faith to faith, the faith that we're saved by and the faith that we walk by after our conversion. But then also notice, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That also is a present revelation. It is parallel to the righteous revelation in verse 17. It's not talking about future. It's not talking about after the unbeliever dies, he goes to hell and experiences the wrath of God. It's a present revelation here and now. Revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And this present application of the wrath of God is what we want to keep in in our mind when we start seeing the threefold giving over in verse 24, 26, 28. That by giving us over he can display his wrath and maybe if we don't recover we can be the object lesson for somebody else to look at and go, ooh, (laughs) I don't want that. Or, oh wow, I better repent. Look at at the hand of God there. See. All right, and so this is what happens, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, even though you know it, even though creation makes it evident, even though the image of God is undeniable because of how we are constituted and, and, uh, and how we operate as humans. And yet the more that they keep themselves in darkness, this darkness just gets darker. So, there without excuse we're told in verse 20, uh, God's existence is freely evident. It's evident 
in the universe and within each one of us. So even though they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And this is the consequence. Humans do this the longer we profess, the, you know, as a fool with professing our atheism. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man, of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So when you're going to be in this realm of darkness, denying God and worshiping idols, here's the first giving over. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. That's the first giving over. And it gets worse. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so even with this, even with dishonored bodies, does that wake them up? Or do they learn to live with the dishonor? They start to embrace the shame. They wear it as a badge of honor and say, yeah, okay. And uh, they celebrate it. Well, then it gets worse. Second giving over is intensified from the first giving over. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And in this, not only are we uh, dishonoring our bodies, that was the first giving over, now we're dishonoring our bodies and enjoying it. The degrading passions. And even if it's degrading, we, it, we get excited. We find pleasure in it. It's a twisted carnal pleasure. For the women exchange natural function for that which is unnatural. And men, in the same way, men abandon the natural function of the woman, burned in their desire toward one another. So we have lesbianism and male homosexuality here in verses 26 and 27. And that's a step beyond the dishonoring of the bodies that's in verse 24. See? So... You know, do we do we say that homosexual fornication is worse than heterosexual fornication? Well, yes and no. I mean, no in the sense that all sin is sin and falls short of the glory of God, but yes, in the sense that when you sin against your body, there's going to be the physical consequences. But at the very least, heterosexual fornication is at least natural. It's within the designed order of male-female attraction and sexuality. But the degrading passions is unnatural, abandoning the natural function, burning in desire toward one another. And so receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So in addition to physical consequences, there are personal consequences that affect the very soul, that affect the core of who you are. Your personhood is affected and that's only the second giving over. The third giving over, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. And this is, uh, I think Colonel Theme called this the blackout of the soul. This is where it's, uh, this is the third giving over is, is, is like lights out, game over a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And now, being filled with. Here's a play application we don't want. 
okay, um, to be filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. This is what happens when your whole mind is now given over to this depravity. We take the, the human creativity and invent new forms of evil. And just when we think it can't get any worse, somebody else invents something even worse. And then somebody else invents something even worse. Evil men and imposters are going from bad to worse. And this is the, the, this is the downhill slide that we're on until Christ returns. All right. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. There's inventors of evil I was talking about. Disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Look at this. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. You know what that hearty approval is all about? That hearty approval is about parades and acceptance and the demands that you celebrate their perversion. Because if you don't, you're a hater. And here's God writing about it 2,000 years ago, laying it out for what it is. Anyway, more than 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, related to, uh, well, I guess 3,000, related to Solomon and the Proverbs in 1,000 B.C., So when he talks about cease listening, my son, and stray from the path of knowledge, it's a giving over. It's a giving over. All right. Then uh, E, the last issue here, the worthless witness and his mocking mouth. Belial. We've seen Belial before. We've seen this useless character before. There's Belial and son of Belial. There's other expressions in the Old Testament. They come across in the New Testament actually. Jesus will cite it in some of the uh, conflict he gets involved in. They actually accused him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Different, uh, different names there. Anyway, here's the Belial. And this is the final time we see him actually. Because we had him in chapter 6, chapter 16, chapter 19. And with this we'll close. Don't, you don't want to be a Belial. The Belial is the worthless person. The absolute worthless. And we just talked about how full of worth we have because God redeemed us, God sent His Son, that we're choice and precious in the sight of God. Well, does that include Belial? <laughs> okay. When you make yourself a Belial. Alright, so real quickly then, Proverbs 6.12. Yeah, if you're at the point where you're swallowing sin, that's uh, the rascally witness makes a mockery of justice and the mouth of the wicked swallows iniquity. It's your, it's your appetite. You eat it, you breathe it, you live it. Proverbs 6.12 says, A belial, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his finger, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil. Remember this guy? It's not enough that he's involved in sin. He's bringing you into it. He's giving you the, the indicator so you can join in his, uh, in his belial activity. Proverbs 16, 27. A worthless man, a belial, digs up evil while his words are like a scorching fire. 
perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Look at these characters here in Proverbs 16, all of them serving the adversary, serving your father the devil. All right, well that wraps up chapter 19. Next week we'll uh, preach on drunkenness. When we open up Proverbs chapter 20, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. We get, uh, we get wine and beer, actually. Strong drink is probably a beer um, product of the Old Testament times. And they get personified. They get personified like wisdom gets personified so frequently in, uh, in Proverbs. And uh, not good when your life is controlled by alcohol. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the blessings we have to study. 19 chapters done now, Father, and 12 more to go. Thank you for uh, bringing us through and uh, opening our eyes to these timeless principles written 3,000 years ago but alive and powerful today. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.